Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, we will be back in Galatians 5 this morning. We'll pick it up once we get to that point in verse 19. Last week, um, we left off having covered 15, 16, 17, and 18, which I will review, but let me pray before we get started. Our Father, we thank you for drawing us together as a community um, which shares faith in you and the confident expectation in a life to come because of the work which you have done to redeem us from sin and from death. We ask this morning as we look at your word, uh, you would make these things relevant to us. Uh, by, by pointing out to us how uh, a list of the works of the flesh relates to the call to us to be in relationship with you. Um, God, you know how much I don't like preaching this kind of sermon. And you know who needs to hear it and who doesn't. So I pray that the blows don't go too deeply into somebody who has a tender conscience and that they don't bounce off of somebody who doesn't. We ask, Holy Spirit, that as you move through this room, you would elevate our estimation and appreciation for the person and work of Jesus Christ above everything else. And we ask for it in his beautiful name. Amen. Um, having spent weeks and weeks and weeks covering the subject of legalism, um, the last couple of weeks we've started to explore this idea, this doctrine of positional and then practical sanctification. Um, and last week, I mean, I don't do point, you know, here's point one very often for your outline. Here's point two. But if you, if you comb through the sermon, there were basically two points. And the first one was that sanctification means always bearing in mind that what we have in Christ, we have all of grace. It's not of works that any man should boast. So if that's true and everything that I have from God that enables me to be in communion and fellowship with him is a matter of grace, then sanctification, practically speaking, should look like me being gracious toward other sinners. If God, who's not a sinner, can show grace to a sinner, then surely a sinner can show grace to another sinner. Um, if we are biting and snipping at other sinners, it is always an indication that we are losing sight of the grace which God has shown us, right? And then I said Christian cannibalism happens when people who claim to be saved by grace fail to show that grace to others. So we looked at Matthew 18 and the story of the servant who owed, you know, $200 billion and was forgiven it by his master. 
And then having been forgiven, that incomprehensible debt immediately goes out and starts choking out his fellow servant that owes him 20 bucks. Uh, That would be an indication of somebody that doesn't properly appreciate grace. If you do that, right? Now, if you walked out of here last Sunday and promptly forgot that, uh, it's because you're someone who doesn't properly appreciate grace. If you walked out of here last Sunday thinking, oh man, I've really got to do a better job of showing grace to my brothers and sisters, I mean, at the very least at church, then you're somebody who is cultivating an appreciation for the grace you've been shown. So it's a pretty clear diagnostic, and we're going to see more of these as we move along. The second point was that practical sanctification involves walking by the Holy Spirit. We define walking by the Spirit as being in constant communion with God the Father. If I am in fellowship, in communion with God, I will not carry out the desires of my flesh. Bearing in mind, we, we defined flesh as that kind of a vague reference to our former fallen corrupt nature that still exists. It's not a reference to your skin and your muscles and your organs and all of the connective tissue. It's a reference to humanity left to itself. All of us can say, if we are a Christian today, we can say there was a time when I fully embraced and indulged the lusts and desires of the flesh, and now it's different. I'm walking with God. I'm in communion with God. And so the idea has to do with proximity, okay? Imagine that you are, uh, that you're driving and uh, you see up ahead on the road pointed at you a police car off to the side. No sensible driver accelerates when they see a police car. The proximity causes you to evaluate what speed am I going? What's the speed limit? Right? Yeah. It's a universal experience. In the same way, a child, even a rebellious one, will curb their instincts when mom and dad are in proximity. By the way, never say close proximity. That's redundant, and it makes you sound dumb. Proximity means close, all right? Anyway, that was personal and tangential. We have acknowledged that a Christian is someone who possesses two desires. So in the same way that a child wants to eat the entire container of cookies, they will not while mom and dad are observing them because there are two desires that exist. One, to consume all of the goodies, and the other, to be pleasing to mom and dad. So it's just practical. If you are in proximity, in relationship with your heavenly Father, it brings the carnal fleshly desires under some restraint, but it does not eliminate them entirely. We went to Romans 7 and saw that. We will most certainly still want to do the deeds of the flesh, but communion with God has a restraining influence. Amen? And we'll see next week 
that communion with God has a compelling influence as well. But I don't want to preach that sermon yet. Um, so let me go back to the, to the main point here, point two. If I'm walking by the Spirit, I will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Essentially, that means if I stay close to my Father in heaven, I will be reluctant to indulge my baser instincts because I genuinely want to please God. However, Paul makes it crystal clear both here in Galatians 5 and later on in his ministry in Romans 7 that we still possess the old desires and that these two desires, my old fleshly corrupt desire and my new godly Holy Spirit driven desires, these two are at war with one another. And everybody who's been a Christian for more than two or three minutes understands and says, amen, they are. These desires are at war with one another in my heart. The problem with licentiousness is it removes the warfare. Licentiousness says it doesn't matter how I conduct myself anymore because I'm not under the law. And I brought that sermon to a breathtaking, profound crescendo (laughs) when I said that licentiousness demands the rights of a child of God without claiming the character of the child of God. The point is that God's children are deeply interested in what God takes pleasure in. Amen? Amen. This week, we're going to continue to address this common potential error of liberty, which is licentious. Some children don't bring their desires under restraint when in proximity to mom and dad, right? That's all right. Uh, As they get older, that becomes more true. Uh, we're going to continue to address this common potential, potential error of liberty, which is licentiousness, by looking at a diagnostic of practical sanctification. Now, what Paul likes to do is make lists. And the reason that his lists are a diagnostic is the same reason that sometimes when you go in for a diagnostic, you have to get what's called a contrast dye. So they can see on the scans what's going on in you. Paul likes to diagnose by contrast, so he supplies us with lists. You want to know if you're walking in the Spirit? Here's what it doesn't look like. And so we get this list. I don't like Paul's lists, partly because we tend to miss things like this. At the end of 21, it's not where we're starting, but it's where we'll finish. At the end, well... The middle of 21. He, he says, envy, uh, drunkenness, orgies. And then what are the next four words? And things like these. So it's not exhaustive. You can't build your whole doctrine of what it means to be sanctified based on this list or the ones in Corinthians or the one in Romans. It, you have to be aware that he's just kind of, it's just kind of a shotgun blast in the general direction of the flesh. But we'll notice what it means to walk by the Spirit. Verse 19, Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Stop. Our first three items fall under the category of physical sexual desires. All parents love it when the pastor is preaching a sermon about that because it's not going to make for an awkward car ride home, right? Sex is designed by God. 
I used to tell the youth, and I had, I'll say this one more time to see how you all react, because they would giggle like I meant something gross by it. God designed sex before the fall. And it's not as though after the fall, Satan came and put something on you that wasn't there before. It's a beautiful design. He wants us to enjoy it. However, it's designed to be enjoyed only in the context of what I call covenant relationship. My fundamentalist Baptist brothers say marriage. And that makes everybody in 2022 turn off because we don't want to have a debate about whether or not marriage can be all the different things our culture says that it can be. So I've chosen covenant relationship because it brings everything perfectly in line with the biblical context. How does God describe marriage? It is a promise between one man and one woman with witnesses, generally speaking, before God until death do us part. That's the context where sex can happen. Any sexual experience outside of the context of covenant relationship is a deed of the flesh. That does not mean muscles and skin and connective tissue. We're talking about the baser instinct of your old nature. The spirit wars with the flesh. The flesh wars with the spirit so that you cannot do what you please. That means that while sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality must, capital M-U-S-T, must not be a reigning sin in your life, they will absolutely possibly be a remaining sin in your life. Not reigning, remaining. So don't detach from this message because you think, well, there goes any hope for me. What are you doing about it if you have this remaining sin in your heart, in your mind, or in your life? How are you countering this instinct of the flesh? What did we see last week? What must we do if we don't want to carry out the desires of the flesh? So glance at Galatians 5. Look at verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This means in communion in fellowship with our Heavenly Father. What are you doing with this remaining corruption of sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality? Some of you are going to have to go to Him filthy with the stench of this on you and confess it to Him and pour your heart out to Him. I wonder if you will. Or if you will rather try to clean yourself up first, do some penance first, and help God keep his promises first. You want to be done caving into your baser sexual desires? You need to be in fellowship 
with God. It's pretty simple. Uh, idolatry and sorcery. Verse 20. Stop. <laughs> idolatry and sorcery. I think these two are ultimately worship sins. Um, idolatry is image worship. So let's make this as broad as humanly possible so that we can leave here maybe finally understanding something we can remember about idolatry. Because if I line up all of the people in this room from oldest to youngest and say, what's idolatry? You're going to get a lot of different answers, right? Some of them will be narrative personal history answers. Some of them will be philosophical, like cerebral answers. And some of them will be uh, worshiping anything but God, right? And yet, idolatry must be operative in your heart if this is a remaining sin, if this is a leftover corruption that you are at war with by the Spirit. It must be going on in you right now. Hopefully not a reigning sin. If you don't understand what it is, how can you combat it? So let's go to 1 John 2, 15 and 16 and 17. So that's towards the end of your Bible. First John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. Now, in case you were like, oh, got to stop loving my kids. That's not what he means. He's going to tell you what he means by the things in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And, and this is a summary description of what happened in Genesis 3 at the fall. Right? Desires of the flesh. Adam and Eve looked at the fruit and they saw it was desirable to make one wise. And it was going to be tasty. It was a delight to the eyes. And the devil said, you're not going to die. God just knows in the day you eat of it, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. So boastful pride of life. Sin won't kill me. I can just dabble in it. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Hallelujah, right? But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So idolatry is this. God gives us many things to enjoy, many things to enjoy, including sex in the context of covenant relationship, many things to enjoy. The problem occurs when, look at me, because this is, if you can remember this, it will change your life. And I don't often say that. And it's not because it, I'm brilliant and I thought of it. I just read a lot. The problem occurs when the gift that's given to you by the Father is the place where your affections terminate. So I get the gift, and this is where my affections terminate, on the gift rather than the one who gave me the gift. The design of that steak, of that wine, of that lobster, of that loved one, whatever it is, the design of God in giving you that is that your worship might flow from that gift to the giver. 
that you would realize it must be a good God who gives me things like this to enjoy. But we don't. Let's illustrate. In Exodus 12, 33, the Egyptians are finally going to cave and let Israel go, right? Here's what it says. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bo- for their kneading bowls were bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians let them have what they asked. Thus, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. And when they left Egypt, they did so with a bunch of treasure, gold and silver, right? Now, fast forward a few chapters. Moses is up on the mountain. Aaron and the people are hanging out down below. What happened? Well, they just decide to throw their gold into the fire and out jumps a golden calf. Where does the gold come from? God so moved that the Egyptians would just hand it over. He had a design for that treasure. Part of it was probably to encourage the hearts of the Israelites as they're leaving. Like, we're not just escaping. They're paying us to go. And they use it to literally create something else to worship besides God. We don't ever do that, right? With our jobs, our houses, our cars, our phones, our hair. Thank you. Could be a relationship. It could be your kids. But idolatry happens when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing in your life. And your affections terminate on that thing rather than the giver. On to sorcery. Now, the fundamentalist will tell you that sorcery means you cannot read Harry Potter books or watch Harry Potter movies because they're about magic and witches and wizardry. I will tell you rather that you should be extremely careful about what drugs you take. Sorcery in the Greek is pharmakia. I mean, that should sound just like what it means to us. It's defined as the use of medicine, drugs, or spells. I'll just make one point of application. Christians ought to be extremely deliberate about what we consume. If sorcery is the use of medicine, drugs, or spells, let's contemplate before we take Just because someone with letters after their name tells you to take something doesn't mean you should take it. On the flip side, just because somebody with pastor before their name tells you not to take it doesn't mean you shouldn't. You ought to be deliberate and thoughtful and care. It's like do a little research. Idolatry and sorcery are deeds which relate to your former life. All right, verse 20. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and so on and so forth. Yeah. (laughs) These seven all have to do with human relationships. Enmity, uh, it's a word that you don't often use at work. 
is deep-seated hatred. This is the reservation of the right to be hostile towards somebody. Now, it's possible the reason that I have a certain amount of anxiety about preaching this particular message is because I find myself to be so disappointingly guilty of these seven things and having really good reasons why it's okay for me. Strife is contentment to be at war. This is a person who quarrels easily. They are spoiling for a fight and everybody knows it. Jealousy in this case, in this case, is that suspicious, fearful uneasiness, resentment towards someone who you suspect wants what you have. So some dogs... All you have to do is walk past them while they're eating and they growl at you, right? Yes. Never mind, you don't have any interest in kibble. The dog growls at you. This is a, what a jealous person is like. They're suspicious without a cause. Fits of anger. I mean, hide a camera in my car if you want to see what this looks like. <laughs> Rivalries. These result from the aforementioned jealousy. Selfish ambition will drive someone to see threats where there are none. Rivalry ensues because the factious, jealous person, listen, the factious, jealous person is always flattering to gain allies and gossiping to marginalize. And then battle lines get drawn. Dissensions, divisions, Factions. I mean, like, do we need to keep going no. one by one? Just follow the bouncing ball. I don't like this part. Right? <laughs> a church which sees a lot of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and resulting factions may be really hard for us to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and we all giggle, right? Because you know I'm speaking ironically because everybody who's been a Christian for a few minutes and who has been to church is like, oh, I've seen it at church sometimes more than I've seen it out in the world. Christians routinely behave like this. And I'm just going to suggest that this is not a list of inadvertent missteps. This is not a list of oopsies. This is a list of on purposes. Paul is not highlighting some ways that a Christian may stumble. He's identifying patterns of living which clearly indicate an absence of the Holy Spirit's influence. Mm -hmm. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Sexual, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, all licentiousness, right? Okay. Idolatry and sorcery, licentiousness. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, factions, envy, all licentiousness, right? Drunkenness and carousing, up next. Also, licentiousness. What do all of these have in common? 
The whole list has this in common. What happens to your relationship with God when you are entangled in sexual immorality? In Ephesians, Paul says, don't be drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit, suggesting that you might be one or the other, drunk or filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't do this, do that instead. What happens to your relationship with God when you're drunk and engaged in all the corresponding drama? You ever seen a drunk person? Man, they are given fully over to the flesh. They can't think right, they can't speak right, they can't walk right, so how are they communing with God right? They're not. Paul gives us these works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery on one side. Drunkenness and carousing on the other side. And then smushed in the middle, I mean, the legalistic Pharisee gladly adds his amen to the ban on sexual immorality, drunkenness, and sorcery. That's right. Paul, those gays are ruining this country. That's right, Paul. Those drug addicts are ruining our community. That's right, Paul. Those drunks are a huge problem. They're mowing down our kids. But, but, what else is included in the same list? He smushes into the middle all of the obviously human relationship destroying sins. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, factions, and envy. I mean, how offended would we be? How, like, indignant would we be if a young lady showed up here next Sunday? I mean, really dressed immodestly like not like you know that's question not borderline like really just like hey boys how incensed would some of you be if that happened how bothered would we be if somebody came stumbling in here drunk or high how disgusted would we be if a man came prancing in here acting all effeminate And we might put a good mask on it and smile at them and be pleasant. But in your heart of hearts, what goes on when you see that? And I hopefully, just with those three, I struck a resonant chord in your heart somewhere. How offended are we by rivalry and dissension? License demands the rights of a child without the nature of a child. And God has just put all of our human relationship-destroying sins on the same licentious list as the grosser sins which the church historically detests. I have to say all that again. License demands the rights of a child without the nature of a child. And God just put all of the human relationship destroying sins on the same licentiousness list of all the grosser sins which the church historically detests. My question is, what is the difference? And it would appear the answer is, there isn't any. 
If you're walking by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So whether you're guilty of those private sins of heart or those public sins, the outcome is relationship destroying. And Jesus came that we might be in relationship with God and one another. Licentiousness destroys that relationship. The outcome is verse 21. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So two things here. First, Again, the list, not exhaustive. It's not all the possible ways that we can sin. Second, remember cause and effect from last week. You don't, I'm going to remind you. The cause was God is gracious. The effect is we're grateful and gracious. The cause is I'm saved from sin into relationship with my creator. The effect is I cannot practice, which means my life cannot be consistently marked by deeds of the flesh. I have been justified, adopted, and sanctified, so it ought to look like it in the way I conduct myself. Amen? Amen. Cause, Jesus Christ has saved me from sin and brought me into relationship with my Heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit. Effect, I am at war with my fleshly desires cause and effect don't put the cart before the horse but if you're not at war you're not a child of god now, i don't mean war with our culture and i i just don't like that when preachers do that we're at war with the cult no we're not We're supposed to make tents and dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Like we're supposed to deploy to the culture and share the gospel. If you're not at war with your own remaining corruption, you're not a child of God. And believe me, when you're not a child of God at war with your own fleshly desires, then war with the culture will sure feel like a good religious substitute. Love your neighbor. The whole law is summed up in this. If you do not have the character of a son or a daughter, you do not get the inheritance of a son or a daughter. And the characteristic that Paul has defined most clearly here is this one. The sons and daughters of God are at war with the flesh. My question is, what kind of a church will we be? Will we draw to Jesus? Will we develop in community? Will we deploy to the culture and display the glory of God? Or will we draw lines in the sand, develop rivalries and factions, deploy against one another, and display the curse of sin? I mean, how fitting that just this week the Supreme Court does something that every Christian who's been praying for years would happen and and at the very least abortion 
for the moment, stops being an etched-in-stone right for every American and becomes an issue for each state to take up. Like, that's, pro- that's progress in the right direction, right? And what happens? Warfare. I mean, I don't, it, do, like, it doesn't matter who you vote for. This is not a political issue. What happens is warfare. Because those who are not destroying the works of the flesh, those who are not at war with the baser desires of their human depravity, are furious that the right to murder babies has just been taken away from them. And the church who goes, well, we think babies probably shouldn't be murdered, are now most certainly going to be the targets of enmity, strife, dissension, factions. Now, if the world points her barrel at us and sees us already in the midst of envy and jealousy and strife and factious behavior and dissensions, what's she going to do? The world's going to go, oh, never mind. They're, They're taking care of it on their own. You think the devil doesn't want us at, our, at one another's throats? Of course he does. If he can't trip you up with sexual immorality, he will happily trip you up with church politics. That'll work just fine for him. But if we're gracious, and thoughtful, and loving, and pray for each other, it might look a whole lot different. So in 1 Corinthians 11... 17, Paul says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now listen, we're not the church at Corinth. We're newer than that. The bloom is still on the rose. We're still in the honeymoon period, right? When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Well, I think, I think we're okay. I think when we come together, it's for the better, right? I'm not being, I'm not trying to trick you. I really, that's my evaluation. Like we're on the right track so far. Okay, good. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Oh. Oh, so the day is going to come where we will have to draw some lines. Last week, I quoted a significant portion of the 80s hit, We Are the World, (laughs) jokingly identifying that ecumenicalism is not the solution. The answer to the, the call in Galatians to avoid strife and envy and jealousy and dissensions and factions is not to throw out any standard of morality. And if we're going to uphold a standard of morality, there are those who are going to be upset with us. And for a while, they may even be in our, in our midst. So Paul says, that it's going to happen. There's going to be dissensions so that the genuine among you may be recognized. But brothers and sisters, I'm not hoping for that. I'm not excited about it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Not here. We're okay. Right? 
Right? Some of you seem uncertain. Maybe <laughs> you should come to elders' meeting. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Like, this is not about filling your stomach. This is a remembrance of the work of Christ. And the vials brought sausage, egg, and cheese breakfast today. And bread. And bread. That's right. Do you not have houses to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Lack of consideration is never common. Commendatory? Commendable. In In the church. Lack of consideration for one another is gross. It ought not be happening here. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that... The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Can you imagine? I mean, I've been betrayed. And the only thing I was doing that night was feeling sorry for myself. Jesus, rather, washes the feet of his disciples and then breaks bread and serves them and commends to them to do this in remembrance of him. He was all about ministering to their hearts in his darkest hour. Now that is a picture of how we ought to behave towards one another. We good? When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what we would say is the Lord's Supper or communion, which we're about to do, is first an obedient act to Jesus. He commanded us to do it, so we do it regularly in obedience. Second, it is reserved for the people who are at war with the flesh. If you do not have warfare with the flesh because you're trying to walk by the Spirit, this has nothing to do with you. You know how you could fix that real quick? Ask him. Just close your eyes and pray and say, Father, God, I don't want to live ultimately unto myself anymore. I want to know you and be known by you. It's that simple. Let me pray.